Who is Dirty Harry? Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this week to talk about 1988's Red Heat. And boy, is it hot. You can feel the steam coming off this one. Oh yeah, get the sizzle. It's like the opening of the movie where a bunch of naked men and women are working out. In the world's greatest (laughs) co-ed Russian spa. How would you feel walking around in there? I would feel amazing. Uh, they probably wouldn't let me in, judging by the uh, general physique allowances there. They have to have a pretty high bar you got to meet to get membership into that gym. Yeah, a chin-up bar, as well as a pull-up bar, a bench press bar. Uh, it it looks know. like a lot of posing. Um, and we learned about posing, of course, in Pumping Iron. Yeah, can you, I mean, usually we wait 30 seconds before we go off on tangents, but can you think of a place that you would like to work out less than in a sweaty steam room next to a hot tub? Surrounded by an army of, like, behemoths? Yeah, no, it's, it, seems, it seems like it might be kind of unpleasant. But yeah. anyways, Cam. Yeah, so Red Heat, <laughs> definitely not one of Arnold's most remembered or treasured 1980s movies even though it comes out you know just after like the big burst of like predator and so you'd think well of course red heat must have been riding that crest and another big hit um tony i'm curious though do you remember seeing this movie the first time i do remember seeing it the first time but i think i'm in the same boat as you cam in that i did not really remember that much about it what did you remember did you remember liking it at all no, I didn't actually. I, I don't remember. I, uh, To be honest, before we watched it again for this podcast, what I thought was my memory of Red Heat turns out was probably a, a pastiche of a bunch of different Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. So it turns out I remember next to nothing of this movie. So I, I basically came into it with fresh eyes. All you remembered was his cameo in Around the World in 80 Days on a Loop? The, pretty much, yeah, exactly. It was just, uh, you know, some nice uh, Turkish satin and some tasseled pillows. <laughs> Wasn't the right movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I remember watching this movie on Tough Guy Thursdays, which was a program on my local cable affiliate where they showed, you know, Tough Guy movies on Thursdays, such as the works of like Eastwood, Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris, all those kind of guys. But I remember watching this one after I'd watched, say, Terminator and Predator uh, multiple times. I was totally in love with Schwarzenegger movies at this point. Running Man was another one that I'd watched a few times. Um, and I remember they were advertising Red Heat, and I was so excited because it was one I hadn't seen or heard of. Um, and so I taped it, and I remember my friend Mark came on, and Mark, of course, was on our episode on Predator. Um, he came over, and we sat down, I'm sure on like a Saturday afternoon, and we watched Red Heat, and we hated it. (laughs) (laughs) How old were you at the time? Oh, God, probably like 12 or something. But I just remember hating it and the only thing i enjoyed about it was that the villain has a gun that like slides out of his wrist kind of you know it's so like the one uh, robert de niro makes in taxi driver same gimmick but i remember that i thought was really cool other than that i thought this movie was an absolute bore uh now of course that's 12 year old me we'll get in a second to what 37 year old me thought of it yeah, i but... can see how an edited for tv version of this movie would not really appeal to a 12 year old in the 90s yeah yeah And so I never watched it again. I watched many of Arnold's movies, you know, several times over the years. But this was one I never revisited. Yeah, and I think I watched a lot of them with you over the years. But (laughs) for whatever reason, we never pulled Red Heat out of the old closet. We just kept going back to Around the World in 80 Days. (laughs) Yeah, over and over again. I just love those tassels. So Red Heat, as I said, comes out in the wake of Predator. And it uh, was not a big hit. It was uh, made for... They listed as $29 million. I don't know how accurate that is, but it grossed $35 million, which, eh, not that good. It was number 22 for Arnold Schwarzenegger. When you look at his all-time grossing movies, 
It's number 22. There's a reason it's not necessarily remembered the most with his name. How did it stack up against uh, Arnold's other 1988 movie? Twins. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because when you look at the top five of that year, Twins was number five, earning $112 million. Above it, you had Big, Coming to America, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and of course, first was Rain Man. Uh, If you listen to our episode on Twins, we go more in depth on the box office that year. But yeah, Red Heat landed at number 31 for the year. Definitely not a big sensation. And it landed right between the final Dirty Harry movie, The Deadpool, which is ironic given that uh, there's a point in this movie where Arnold says, Who's Dirty Harry? The answer to that is the guy who beat you by one spot on the box (laughs) office in 1988. Hey, you're the top 35. (laughs) And then right underneath this movie was Dangerous Liaisons, which is a really good movie with John Malkovich and uh, Uma Thurman, Glenn Close. Interestingly, some of the movies that beat it by a lot, um, you know, in the $50 million mark, were movies like Rambo 3, which was considered a big dud. And so it's interesting that a movie that was a big dud uh, made more than Red Heat. That was another Karolko film, I believe. Right, yeah, Which yeah. Uh, was not a not a great year for Karolko, maybe? No. Certainly no Showgirls Cutthroat Island one-two punch. <laughs> but another movie that beat it by almost double, practically, was Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Did you realize those movies were that popular? I did. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, I mean, that was a good one. It, the Dream Child, I think it was? I don't know, actually. They all run together for I me. think so, because I know the third one was Dream Warriors, so I'm guessing this was Dream Child? I think you're right. I don't know. Either way, it was not good, but it just shocked me that a movie like Red Heat, along with movies like Deadpool and Dangerous Liaisons, were that far behind Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I never realized that that franchise was so popular. Yeah, I mean, doing some of the research for this episode, I did take a look at some of the comments that the people who were involved in this production had about that, because everybody expected it to be a big hit, and no one could really explain why it wasn't. Yeah, because coming out the same year as Twins, which is a massive hit, obviously Arnold Schwarzenegger is at that really great point in his career where he's just crossed over into mainstream popularity, but they definitely didn't turn out for this movie. Um, Now, I'm curious, Tony, revisiting it all these years later, I guess in many ways for the first time, what was your take on Red Heat? You know, it's probably the straightest I've seen Arnold Schwarzenegger play a character in a long time. Yeah, (laughs) second only to Maggie. (laughs) Yeah, maybe Aftermath. Well, actually, I guess we haven't done Aftermath. Did you jump in a time machine and go watch Aftermath and come back? Um, No, I don't think I'd do that having seen Aftermath. (laughs) It's not exactly the feel-good movie of the year, but we'll get to that in a later podcast. Right. As far as Red Heat goes, I thought it was okay, but I think that there's probably a reason why it has been maybe at the bottom of the VHS pile with Running Man and Terminator and uh, Junior. No, maybe not Junior. (laughs) Total Recall all stacked on top of it. Right, yeah, yeah. I gotta say... I enjoyed it a lot more this time. This movie was directed by Walter Hill, who did movies like The Warriors. Um, Pretty good pedigree, that guy. Yeah, he launched kind of the buddy cop genre popularity a lot in the 80s with... um, 48 Hours. Yeah, Yeah. uh, not so much with another 48 Hours, but um, (laughs) you know, he was really good at this stuff. But he did a lot of movies about masculine men being manly and having these codes of honor you know you see it in some of his westerns like last man standing or geronimo an american legend uh that's kind of his thing he also did movies that i kind of liked that weren't necessarily great but movies like uh, trespass in the 90s do you remember that yeah i do remember trespass actually i believe it had two ices and two bills okay well let's start with the bills which bills uh there was uh bill paxton and Mm -hmm. bill sadler right and And which ices (laughs) (laughs) um certainly not vanilla ice ice tea and ice cube (laughs) i was waiting uh you know to hear if vanilla ice was in it just because I want to know if there was a follow-up to Cool as Ice. <laughs> no, he's he's out hanging with snow somewhere. <laughs> In form. <laughs> he was Canadian, wasn't he? I wonder if U.S. people even know who uh, Snow is. I think that was like a Canadian uh, artist. I'm pretty sure Snow is up there with uh, uh, one-hit wonders that are very yeah, well-known. Yeah, it's true. But uh, Walter Hill also did the movie Undisputed, which I enjoyed a lot, which had Ving Rhames and, uh, I believe, Wesley Snipes. It was like a prison boxing movie. I know they made a bunch of straight-to-video sequels, but I did like the original. 
Yeah, I think it's one of those it's one of those movies that didn't do that well in the box office, but for whatever reason spawned like undisputed seven, yeah. the most undisputed, and that kind of thing. <laughs> it's like Jarhead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I gotta say what I liked about this movie was it's so slickly made. I don't think I would have appreciated it at you know twelve years old how well this movie shot and edited, and just sort of the tough gravity that Walter Hill brings to his direction. It feels like a very crisply made movie. I, I enjoyed it for that, and I kind of enjoyed how mean it is. I really think that's why I didn't like it as a kid. It is a mean movie. Yeah, everybody in this movie is in kind of a bad mood. Yes. I think the reason, though, that I don't quite connect with it as much as I should and why it does place further down the rung for me, even if only in the middle, because I did still enjoy it, but... This is a buddy cop movie, and I did not find a lot of chemistry between Schwarzenegger and James Belushi that I found that interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I actually don't uh, agree fully with uh, this movie being super crisp. Okay. Uh, we were we were talking a little bit actually before we watched the movie for the podcast about various directors and even where they even where they fail, you can really get a sense of just how much they care about their material and how much they like their craft. I, I, I ended up watching a John Carpenter's Christine last night. <laughs> we were talking about that. Um, here, I didn't really find it. Actually, some of the, the things that I noted when I was watching it was some of the editing I found pretty choppy. There was a bunch of times where I didn't really know what was going on or I didn't really know why people were going places. I kind of mm -hmm. had to piece it together. And I found some of the sound editing even and that kind of thing if you want to go into the the nitty-gritty minutiae of it sure. to be a little bit heavy-handed well i know what you're talking about with the sound because the foley artists were having a day and a half um doing like the fist punches for this movie it sounded like people just slamming two stakes together in front of an overextended microphone and the gunshots sounded like somebody just coughing in a tunnel <laughs> I thought the the punches sounded like like shotguns going off. <laughs> like they were so loud. It was kind of crazy. It was like an old martial arts movie, but played really, 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 really straight and gritty and serious. I yeah. thought it was kind of an odd choice. Yeah, but I guess if uh, some heavy-handed sound is the biggest complaint about the movie, we'll be okay. Right. Okay, well, let's get to this central plot, because this is about two cops, Tony. Two cops. From opposite sides of the world. That's right. Different well, sides of the Iron Curtain. One's a communist, one's a capitalist. Put them together, shake, and see what happens. Oh yeah, baby. So what happened? Well, the plot of this movie is basically Moscow cop Captain Ivan Danko, played by none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger, has to travel to Chicago and team up with Chicago cop, Art Ridzik, played by a wisecracking Jim Belushi, in order to try and capture and take back cocaine-peddling drug dealer Victor Rostavili, played by Edo Ross. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, as you were reading out, I just realized something. Whenever they named Schwarzenegger's character in the movie Ivan Danko, there was something about it that went off in my head, like, that name rings a bell. Like, why does Ivan Danko keep giving me pause uh what was it rocky four no it was not rocky four it's very similar to the name of mickey rourke's character in iron man 2 where he played whiplash whiplash's alter ego name was ivan vanko <laughs> ah, i see we're one letter off so it's interesting because much of that movie in iron man 2 uh is spent with mickey rourke going where's my board where's my board because he had a pet cockatiel or cockatoo I don't remember. The bigger one. Cockatoo, I believe. Um, <laughs> and yet Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ivan Danko, obsesses over his parakeet. So apparently both Ivans, with rhyming last names, love their birds. That's a good point, Cameron. That is a connection for the day. Maybe the most interesting thing to come out of Red Heat discussion. Uh, you can check for Cameron's uh, Amazon Kindle book, uh, Red Heat, the, uh, the inside story uh, on Amazon in, in pretty short order. Coming soon to paperback. Yes. <laughs> right now it's only on Kindle. <laughs> Self-published, of course. <laughs> yeah, Camco Publishing Company. But beyond that, you know, let's kind of delve a little deeper into this because... This is a movie about two cops trying to take down a crime syndicate. This is something we saw done really well a year before in Lethal Weapon. 
which of course launched four movies out of it. And um, it was easy to see how that template could become very, very popular in the decade. Of course, 48 Hours, which Walter Hill did, blew up as well. Very similar kind of thing. What did you think of the central story of this film of these two cops trying to take down a crime ring? Like, Did it feel like it was done in a way that interested you? To be honest, it didn't really grab me that much. Uh, like I said earlier, I didn't really know what they were doing or why for a large part of the movie. I mean, I had a general idea that they were uh, budding around Chicago, uh, meeting up with uh, Victor Rostavili's uh, henchmen and wife and a bunch of other characters. Yeah. But I, it never really became that clear to me why they were going from place to place or what it had to do with them stopping the cocaine. Uh, <laughs> the, the five the $5 million the cocaine. $5 million, $5 million in cocaine from getting to <laughs> Russia or to America yeah. or wherever it was going. Part of the problem is this whole movie is a uh, chase for something that we don't know what it is. You know, it's this MacGuffin idea where they have a key that they have to hide from the villain, from Victor, and it will open something and oh, give him something. But we don't know what. I think by the end of the movie we find out, I mean, we could kind of imply that it was a key to a suitcase full of drugs. Yeah. But... It's not particularly interesting. Like, the mystery of the locker was not particularly compelling in terms of... I, in terms of driving a crime plot that wraps you up in it. And this is not a movie like The Lethal Weapons where there's a lot of action set pieces. Yeah, and one thing I'll just note, uh, you know, if you are uh, a Russian gangster and you've teamed up with the, what were they called? The Clean Heads? Yeah. You know, one of the most notorious Chicago gangs. Yeah. And your biggest issue is how to get into a bus station locker. <laughs> <laughs> you've really got to go down the chain a bit and find out what your footmen are doing. Yeah, that, that is an excellent point, actually, because couldn't they have just broken into it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's got to be easier to break into a bus station locker than it is to kill somebody in a hospital while dressed in drag. That's good point, yeah, yeah. Um, Which, if you haven't seen this movie, just ignore that. If you want a spoiler, it happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seemed like a lot of this movie was them saying, they have to nail Victor. They've got to grab Victor and arrest him. And it seemed like Victor was fairly accessible. <laughs> yeah, he seemed easy to get. Uh, I, I didn't really understand why the clean heads set up a meeting between him and Ivan Danko. Yeah. It, it didn't make a lot of sense why they would want to meet. I guess... He wanted to pay Ivan off. And I guess he wanted the key back from Ivan. Yeah. Um, again, I think he offered 10 years salary to Ivan. Right. Um, I got to believe that for 10 years salary, you can get into a bus locker. <laughs> Yeah, couldn't you just pay like a locksmith? Yeah, or a you know the janitor at the bus station. Be like, yeah, I lost my key. The like, janitor's like, nope, nope, not like, doing it. Like, is that what happens at bus stations? Because this has happened in a bunch of movies. Is that like if somebody loses a key to a bus station locker, is it just locked forever? I think the bus station janitor's like, nope. We bus station janitors, we have a code we live by. We will not open these lockers. Yeah, I mean, does nobody ever? check to make sure that nobody has stored something in a bus station locker for several months. That's an excellent point. I think one thing that's interesting when you watch something like Lethal Weapon or whatever is that there is more of a sense of, you know, they're getting close. And so the element of danger increases where that's where you get a lot of the set pieces come into play, like they're being attacked or whatever. In this movie, you don't get a lot of that sort of thing. You get a shootout in Schwarzenegger's hotel. Which I enjoyed, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's not a lot beyond that until the end. Yeah, you get the bus chase at the end. Uh, you get the, I actually think the opening scene where he walks into that cafe and breaks the, uh, breaks the fake leg off the guy. Right. I thought that was pretty cool. The, the fist fight in the, uh, in the steam room, that was pretty cool. Yeah. But there's not a lot of, not a lot of gunfights going on in this movie. No, no. Um, it's interesting because Walter Hill, when he grabbed a hold of this project, he said he wanted to tone down the Schwarzeneggerisms of this. And his exact quote, it's actually a pretty good quote. He said, I had confidence in him as an actor. I didn't want him to just throw a Volkswagen over a building. Arnold has an ability to communicate that cuts through cultures and countries. They just love to see this guy win. 
But everyone thinks it's his muscles. It's not that at all. It's his face, his eyes. He has a face that's a throwback to a warrior from the Middle Ages or ancient Greece. And so, like, Walter Hill is very interested in, you know, Schwarzenegger as more of an icon and not the Schwarzeneggerisms we know and love from movies like Predator or Running Man, which I wonder if that's part of the problem when you watch this movie is that you want to see those Schwarzenegger elements in the movie and they're not present. And so you have this very, very stripped down Arnold character kind of journeying through a plot that's not that interesting. Whereas when you watch something like Lethal Weapon, like Mel Gibson is, you know, he's a really out there character. And, you know, in 48 Hours, Eddie Murphy, a really out there character that gives you like a real sense of fun. Whereas in this case, the two cops investigating this pretty cliched crime story are pretty uninteresting, just take it on the face of them. Like, James Belushi is the comedic foil, but he's not particularly funny, and Schwarzenegger's very much a straight man. Yeah, I actually thought the funniest parts of the movie were actually Schwarzenegger as the straight man, Yeah, where he's being asked a bunch of questions, uh, and he's just giving his monosyllabic, yes, no. Thank you. Yes. I was just kidding. I know. <laughs> like, that kind of thing. And maybe that kind of gets into why this movie maybe didn't do so well at the box office. If you look at, really at the core of this movie is a relationship between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. And it's just not really there, I don't think. Uh, I mean, no knocks against uh, Jim Belushi. I mean, critics already have had their knives out for that guy for like 20, 30 years now. So yeah, let's not rip into him too much, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he really had the best lines to deliver, but he just, he wasn't that funny in this movie. As far as putting something out there for a straight man to respond to, I mean, it was pretty much limited to dick jokes and a conversation about a parakeet. And he made a lot of, like, references to masturbation and stuff like that, and you're like, okay, like, do you have a good understanding who this character is? Because I would say when you watch 48 Hours or Lethal Weapon, you understand who the individuals taking part in this case, who they really are as people. Do you have a good sense of who Art Ridzik is? I didn't really have a good sense of who anybody in this movie was, except uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character and um, you know maybe Peter Boyle's character. <laughs> uh, everyone else in the police department or in the gangs, yeah, they were just kind of there as window dressing. I didn't even really understand who outranked whom uh, because they were all seemed to be ordering each other around all the time. All we know really is that James Belushi is at the bottom of the pecking order, it seems. Yeah, and he was referred to as a good cop with a bad attitude. Yeah. And so, you know, what could go wrong if they send him out in the field with Ivan Danko? Turns out that was a poor prediction. <laughs> the thing about James Belushi is, I know that people have always kind of you know, look down on him a bit as an actor. I I, he, I thought he was fun, at least in movies like K-9. Uh, he's great in the movie Salvador uh, with James Woods, the Oliver Stone movie. But, I mean, in this movie, I don't think Jim Belushi is an actor who can save a movie just through his own force of will. I think Schwarzenegger is actually more capable of that. Um, but Jim Belushi, if you give him nothing but jokes that aren't funny, his charisma is not going to save the movie. He's not going to elevate the material. And I think if you want him to be funny in a movie like this, the jokes have to be funny. Well, that kind of goes without saying. Um, but he's not a guy who's going to like improv ones that are funnier. Or maybe he did. Maybe he was improv <laughs> Those, These were all the improv Who'd jokes? I, actually, that is one thing that I did um, read about this movie when I was looking it up, is the way Walter Hill likes to work, apparently, and, and the way he actually did work especially on this movie is with very little in the way of script he kind of likes to make it up as he goes along and that's obviously worked for him in a number of movies uh apparently he he had the idea for uh, the fish out of water idea a, a moscow cop in chicago and that was it and then everything else they were they kind of wrote it as as it was filming so i can see that being a problem if you're being asked to carry the comedic weight <laughs> of a movie and then you know you show up in the morning and you're drinking your coffee and walter runs up to you and says jim we're going to need you to make another masturbation joke yeah and i mean 
Walter Hill was spoiled doing 48 hours with Eddie Murphy because Eddie Murphy is a guy who's funny, especially at that point in time. Like he was on fire in that era during the, you know, the early 80s. And so like, if you're like, Eddie, can you give us something funny? He could deliver in those days. Not like the days of Daddy Daycare or Dr. Doolittle too, but in those days, definitely. And, you know, like you said, this movie, I don't think it ever had a final screenplay. Um, it's credited to Walter Hill, as well as two veterans, um, Troy Kennedy Martin, who did the 1969 Italian job in a lot of TV, and uh, also Harry Kleiner, who did the movies Fantastic Voyage, Bullet, Le Mans, uh, Carmen Jones, which Dorothy Dandridge got an Oscar nomination for. Like, these are guys who have some pedigree, but actually, this movie went through those three, and they're the only three credited, but there was something like eight people, like, who worked on this movie. Many uncredited hands were in the screenplay, and I wonder if that kind of explains not just the sort of lukewarm buddy chemistry between these two, but also this crime plot that spends a lot of time going from place to place to place, talking to people in what seems like it's supposed to be an escalating order, but feels more just like time-wasting. Yeah, I mean, in that vein, Gina Gershon in this movie. Yeah. Uh, she plays Victor Rostavili's totally inexplicable why they're married wife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who, I kept it, asking you, is she his wife? Yeah, I mean, the fact that we had questions like this throughout the movie gives a good indication of, well, either our understanding of things generally, yeah. or I'm hoping the kind of problems that, that are with this movie in terms of uh, being able to be easily followed. Because it should be. It's not really that complicated a movie. But anyways, I mean, Gina Gershon, she plays uh, Catman Zetti, the aerobics instructing... Uh, wife of Russian gangster Victor Rostavili, and it's not really that clear to me. I mean, I quite like Gina Gershon. Oh yeah, um, and she certainly doesn't do a bad job in this movie. But it's not really clear to me why she's there. Well, they needed a female somewhere in the cast, I suppose, because <laughs> otherwise there's not many. There was a, an ample supply of prostitutes. Yes, there being... were. Have you ever noticed in movies that prostitutes are almost always attractive women who look like maybe they have burgeoning acting careers and they're almost always being paraded through police stations. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's a total 80s trope. Yeah. Um, and you see them, of course, pop up in another 80s trope, which is the shift from a foreign locale to America, where it's like a montage of America, set to saxophone music in this case. Oh, yeah, man. Nothing says America like Levi's ads and sax music. Yeah, it's like, and you got the traffic and the bustle of the streets. And, of course, there's a couple of ladies of the night, you know, walking around in the daytime often. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Always wearing hot pants and of a course, crop yeah, top. yeah. Looking like extras from Pretty Woman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, going back to Gina Gershon's character... She was there. She was an aerobics instructor. They tailed her for a bit. Also uh, very 80s aerobics. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then tailing a cab. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if I was ever in a movie-like scenario and I got in a cab, I'd be looking behind me the whole time. <laughs> but, you know, they tail her and she introduces him to Victor. But she, And then she shows up in a river later on with her neck snapped. Yeah, I was wondering what was going to happen to that character. And then it was just kind of dismissed in a very brief moment that could have easily happen through rewrites in the moment yeah i mean who knows it, it i was actually kind of amazed they introduced this character and they kill her <laughs> off screen i couldn't figure out why you know a character i really liked was the character of abdul elijah played by brent jennings who is this criminal in a prison who is some sort of collaborator with edo ross's villain and they go to interrogate this guy in the prison but he's this man of God who's also blind. He has sort of this philosopher attitude. And I found him very interesting. Like, he's a character who I would love to follow in a different movie. But, you see, I think it was characters like this that actually kept me enjoying this movie. Was that even though I could never quite figure out the trajectory of this movie, they gave me characters who are at least interesting to watch. And I thought this guy was a total blast. That's true. You know, I never thought of it that way. But 
certainly Gina Gershon's Cat Manzetti aerobics <laughs> instructor. No matter how many times you say it, it'll never not yeah. be great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when she came on the screen, I was kind of interested. I was like, well, you know, what's she going to do? What's her deal? Right. Uh, you know, they establish she's married to the gangster. I think this this might go somewhere. Yeah. Well, like, Gina eh, Gershon... Goes, Gina... goes nowhere. <laughs> Gina Gershon is a cut above a lot of the actresses you would generally see in that type of role. Yeah, that's true. And I and I agree with you that Brent Jennings as Abdul Elijah was uh, also interesting. I was interested to see where his character would go and eh, went nowhere. I like that he had like a code, though. His whole thing was he wanted to get white people hooked on drugs. <laughs> kind of a... It was uh, weird. Like, it's totally out there. But I like that he had a specific worldview that was being communicated. Like, it actually made his character interesting as opposed to just some boring thug who didn't have anything to say. Well, I think he also communicated that he had spent 26 of his 37 years yeah. behind bars, which leads me to believe that he must have lied about his age at the prison, <laughs> prison enrollment agency. I actually also really liked the character of, like, he was just kind of like a snitch played by Brian James of Blade Runner fame. And, you know, James Belushi's planting drugs on him and Schwarzenegger's breaking his fingers. Brian James is so great because you can just see the sleaze coming off of him. Yeah, but again, they kind of throw this character out there yeah. and then they get the information from him. And you think, well, this character, maybe he'll pop up later. And he doesn't. No, it just seems like it's a lot of breadcrumb following of like they go to a character who's kind of quirky or weird who gives them a bit of information that leads them to another character like that, exactly. and another character like that, and then Victor pops up, and then Victor goes away, and then they go to another character, and then Victor pops up, and it kind of just repeats that until you get to a point where, well, this movie's got to end, so Victor's got to start shooting it out with them. Yeah, they should have called this movie Arnold and Jim in the Hall of Character Actors. <laughs> My favorite of which actually was, uh, did you recognize Mike Haggerty? No. Uh, he was, uh, he, he's, he's a kind of a bigger guy. Oh, right, right. He's got the mustache. Um... He's in every sitcom you have ever seen for one episode. He always plays the salesman or the yeah. mechanic or something like that. He played like the maintenance guy, I think, on Friends, and he was also in Wayne's World. Yeah, he's he's in. He's probably got about seven hundred acting credits yeah. to his name. He's I think that he, kind of a guy. I think he was on Seinfeld as well. Yeah, he's great. I had a question actually specifically about his character. So this is close to the third act. You know, it's kind of late second act. Schwarzenegger and Belushi are like, okay, well, let's finally figure out what this key is for after not doing that for the entirety of the movie. And they go to this guy and, and he has all these books that just tell them what key it is. Why did they not go there right at the top? Yeah, that's a good point. You, you, think, <laughs> you think the cops would know about this guy? Well, yeah, like they knew about him just fine. So like if this guy has all these books that will tell you what key goes to what lock, why wasn't that step one? This leads me to believe that James Belushi isn't a good cop, nor is Schwarzenegger. Although he was a stranger in a foreign land, so I'll give him a pass because he wouldn't know that they have a guy who has books. Yeah, no, that's and that's fair. I, I do have to, have, just on the idea of Jim Belushi maybe not being the best cop, yeah. I'm, I'm always impressed in these 80s action movies when, as a police officer, you can either witness or be directly responsible for the deaths of several people, not to mention the destruction of millions of dollars of property, and your police chief simply angrily demands that he wants a report on his desk by first thing tomorrow morning. Like, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, yeah. There was actually, speaking of reports, there was a moment uh, midway through the film where Schwarzenegger wants Jim Belushi to give him his car keys. And Belushi says, no, I can't, I can't. You're not licensed to drive here anyway, so I'm going to go get food, but I'm not, I don't want to give it to you because if I did and you get in an accident, I'm going to have to fill out paperwork for the rest of my life. That's the exact quote. But he ultimately gives them to Schwarzenegger. Along with a gun. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's the guns later. But he gives them the keys, right? <laughs> Schwarzenegger gets in the car and he's sitting there waiting. Jim Belushi comes back and they go to drive off to pursue someone. And Jim Belushi says... I'm going to have to fill out paperwork for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. <laughs> it was a repeated line. It, it was really weird. It was very weird. And I think it was kind of indicative of the material that uh, Jim Belushi had to work with. A lot of repeated jokes. Uh, like we already said, a lot of masturbation jokes. Yeah. A lot of dick jokes. Uh, a lot of him just telling people to eat shit. <laughs> and that, you, I don't know how that's inherently funny, but... Um, I mean, some of them hit the nail. I don't want to totally slag the guy, and I don't want to totally slag the script, but it just 
It, I'm not sure there was a script, so... Yeah, know. yeah. I don't want to slag the story. Um, but he just kind of got that impression that he didn't have a lot to work with in this movie. Right, yeah. What was the point of Lawrence Fishburne's character in this movie? Uh, I just assumed he was another character actor who was dropping crumbs for... Uh, for Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. But, yeah, it wasn't totally clear. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne as Lieutenant Staubs, uh, billed as Larry Fishburne. This was, uh, I guess, pre-Matrix Larry Fishburne. Right. Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that clear. I mean, he was there to kind of have it in for Jim Belushi to be kind of a, a bit of a secondary antagonist for him, I right. guess. But he didn't really have anything to do in the movie except send jim belushi on assignments he didn't want right yeah i thought that was an odd character but let's get to the villain victor because you know these movies are generally only as good as their villain um victor has a lot of screen time and ed o ross plays him and he's definitely sweaty and greasy looking what did you think of this character i thought ed o ross did a pretty good job you know as far as being a sneering totally unsalvageable <laughs> Russian gangster. Uh, another thing I love about these 80s movies is they don't even try yeah. to add even the remotest shred of humanity <laughs> to these characters. Uh, what was it they established him as? As He was arrested in Russia for brigandish, yeah. which is apparently the crime of burning villages and rape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, okay, he's a bad guy. <laughs> He uh, broke Gina Gershon's neck and threw her in a river. Yeah. What did you think of him? I mean, I remember when I was younger hating that character. I thought he was a really boring villain. And I think it's because he wasn't, like, colorful and over-the-top, like, you know, say, like, the Running Man villains, for example. But watching it now, I mean, I admired Ed Ross's dedication to making this man just the most loathsome slug he possibly could. Although I would like to see that. Can you imagine Buzzsaw in Red Heat? <laughs> It'd be great. <laughs> Maybe that was planned for the sequel. You know, there was another 48 hours. Maybe there was supposed to be a redder heat. <laughs> Maybe. But Edo Ross is an actor I'm not that familiar with, at least from recognizing him. But I have seen a couple things he did. He was itchy in the uh, Warren Beatty Dick Tracy movie. Oh, I thought you were going to say in The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, he was also a Tellarite in a really good... A Star Trek Enterprise episode called Bounty. And he was great in that. He was so good that I remember watching that episode and being like, who is this actor? And so it was interesting that he seems to be a bit of a man of a thousand faces and that he works a lot, but he's not very recognizable. Yeah, I mean, I recognized him as soon as he was on the screen. He, oh, well he, then. <laughs> um, no, I don't mean I recognize him. I was like, hey, that's my old buddy, Ed O'Ross. Yeah. Um, but more like... You thought it was Ed O'Neill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No peg. <laughs> I mean, I think I recognized him. I think he had a role in Universal Soldier. I'd have to check on IMDb. He or did. So. Yes, he did. He did. I mean, yeah. that's kind of where he came. And, and he was in a bunch of stuff that I've yeah. seen. I mean, he's certainly no uh, stranger to the screen. He just... Um, no, he was in Full Metal Jacket as well. Yeah, he just doesn't have a lot of leading roles, I don't think. No, that's true. But I enjoyed him in this movie. Like, he's definitely committed. I don't know that he's a villain that can carry the movie. Like, he doesn't inject... A lot of charisma, but he's definitely like on par with, you know, the lethal weapon villains, I think. I think part of the problem with the villain in this movie is that he's not really the antagonist for most of the movie. It's right. it's more of a chase movie, like we said earlier, and a little bit more of a search movie. Yeah. Uh, there's very little of Ed o. Ross and Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jim Belushi on screen. Right. There's, you know, a meeting in a parkade, uh, you know, a brief shootout in a hotel where he just inexplicably throws himself out of a window into a river and then it cuts yeah like he, i seriously doubt this guy can swim so quickly that Schwarzenegger couldn't open fire on him or just run down the stairs and grab him or i gotta believe that this russian gangster when he's faced with uh you know one fish out of water ivan danko uh is gonna throw himself out of a second story window even when he has two two pistols in his hand. Yeah, yeah. No, that's an excellent point. I thought the same thing. Um, but uh, let's get to Schwarzenegger because this podcast, of course, is all about Arnold Schwarzenegger. This movie, as we said, Walter Hill wanted to tone down Schwarzenegger. He told Schwarzenegger to watch the 1939 movie uh, starring Greta Garbo called Ninotchka, which I have not seen. 
Had I had a little more time, I was going to try to watch it before we recorded this podcast. But ultimately, Schwarzenegger based his performance off of Greta Garbo in that film. Uh, it different, helped... different wardrobe. <laughs> no, no, same wardrobe. <laughs> but uh, I would have liked to have seen that movie. But it is interesting in that Schwarzenegger obviously took his role here as Ivan Danko fairly seriously. I don't think it was one he was just, you know, kind of phoning in a little as just the classic Schwarzenegger persona. He was actually trying to play a character. How do you think he did? Well, there wasn't a lot of expression to work with in this character. I mean, his character was basically uh, monosyllabic straight man. Uh, he didn't really have any uh, Shakespearean monologues to judge his acting by. Right. He didn't even have a catchphrase in this movie. Which is kind of a shame. I guess if he had some catchphrase, what would it be? You know, I'm rushing around. <laughs> or... <laughs> or Moscow has less milk than Paz cow. <laughs> yeah. Prepare to see red. <laughs> <laughs> Time to pull back the iron curtain. <laughs> yeah, th- like that kind of thing. I mean, I guess that wouldn't. Ha- I guess that would have worked. Uh, let's not go on with those. Right. But yeah, his one-liners were almost more in the deadpan kind of sense. You know, where he drops the quarter in the TV and it turns on the porno and he says capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, who's they, dirty Harry? Yeah, they ask him, are, "Oh, are you Russian?" He says, "Soviet." Right. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, you're right. He didn't really have the the traditional Schwarzenegger one-liners. Uh, I mean, I, I won't say he did a bad job. I just don't know how much this character required. <laughs> yeah, a, a true thespian. <laughs> he spent three months learning Russian for this movie. Um, which I thought was interesting because he was obviously committed. And I don't know how good his Russian accent is. I'm not Russian, so I'm not going to try to determine that. It seemed uh, more of the Sean Connery variety <laughs> to me, to my untrained ears. Yeah, speaking of Russian in this movie, I, and I always get a kick out of this movie, and speaking of Sean Connery as well, when two Russians meet each other who are played by non-Russian actors, yeah. they always introduce themselves right. in Russian uh, with subtitles, and then after that it's just... Uh, Speaking with accents of in course, English. Of course. <laughs> the Hunt for Red October effect. <laughs> but, you know, I enjoyed his commitment, and I actually enjoyed the film, I think, in addition to Walter Hill's direction and no-nonsense approach to these sorts of movies. Um, I enjoyed Schwarzenegger's commitment and just the level of seriousness he brought to it. Maybe just as a novelty, it was different. And we're going to review a ton of movies on this podcast, and we already have, of movies where Arnold is giving us that classic Arnold charisma bomb kind of performance. I liked what he was doing here. It was different. It was kind of strange. But I think it was definitely noteworthy in his career and kind of kept me compelled throughout the movie because the Jim Belushi character doesn't contribute anything dramatically. It's the Schwarzenegger character who's kind of the one either changing a bit or motivating change through James Belushi. Yeah, I'd go with that. The unfortunately, the the way they established the characters uh, in this movie though were just the, some of the rawest exposition I've I've ever heard. With just him and Jim Belushi sitting in a cafe, yeah. uh, questioning each other about their families. It's not even James Belushi though talking about his family. It's just Schwarzenegger talking about his. Yeah, literally Jim Belushi just saying, "Do you have any brothers?" Yeah. <laughs> what about your father? What did your father do? What about your grandfather? Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. all bad. It's just like a life of tragedy for Schwarzenegger. And I got to say, I think this was a bit of a uh, American movie thing in the 80s, but whenever they show Russia on screen or the Soviet Union, it looks really awful. <laughs> it does not look like a place you'd want to live. Maybe visit. Would you want to visit? Did this movie do a lot for you travelogue-wise? You know, I think this movie probably did more for people wanting to travel to Russia than we want to give it credit for. This was apparently the uh, first movie okay. uh, in decades to be granted permission to film in the Red Square. Or the first American movie, I should say. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Not uh, Rocky Four. 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much of Rocky Four was filmed on location. Yeah, well, I know for a fact that actually the final fight in Rocky Four between Rocky and Dolph Lundgren was actually shot here in Vancouver. <laughs> Hooray! Yeah. Shout out to everyone from Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> or who's seen Rocky Four? Let's keep it a little wider than that. <laughs> but how do you think this performance for Schwarzenegger? kind of sits within his canon of performances and characters. I mean, I don't know in what sense. I mean, like I said, it's certainly there's nothing wrong with his performance at all. I mean, as far as delivering a Russian cop straight man, uh, he's got very good timing. He, I mean, he always has had pretty good timing on his lines. And I don't think that's any different just because he's delivering the straight lines. I mean, like, like we said earlier, a couple jokes you know what do you do with the politicians always shoot them first right that kind of thing uh and bizarre interchanges about parakeets right uh so i think his timing's right his tone is probably right for this character uh and i actually think walter hill was probably right in that uh you know schwarzenegger's face and the way he holds himself it is a a very particular persona and a particular charisma that he's he does project out on the screen just physically not necessarily just through his uh apron wearing muscles in the spa scenes well like schwarzenegger is almost like a silent film star it's really interesting just watching him because he's silent a lot of this movie when he just has a kind of dead expression on his face you know i mean like he's not smiling or frowning he's just straight expression neutral he can communicate so much that I think it's really impressive. Like, you see so many movies with actors who try to do this sort of thing and just come across like boring blanks. But Schwarzenegger is able to communicate intensity so easily that he just makes it look just like a simple simple thing for, I think, actors, and a lot of them can't do it. It's one of those skill sets that's very underrated in his toolbox. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've always thought that Arnold Schwarzenegger is a bit of an underrated actor like people see him as this cartoonish big uh, action oaf almost and i mean i don't think that's the case at all i think that the the movies that he's put in 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 a lot of cases there's not a lot of other actors that could fill those roles very convincingly i don't know if this is one of them like if you had taken i I mean you mentioned dolph lundgren if you had taken dolph lundgren and maybe put him in this role yeah would it have made that big a difference right to the movie um you know maybe maybe not uh but what arnold does in this movie i think he does pretty well yeah i agree with that now let's talk about the action because of course this movie does have a lot of action well it doesn't have a lot of action but it has action um, what did you think of the way Walter Hill shot action? And did any of it stand out to you? Did you enjoy any particular parts of it? I think I mentioned it earlier. I thought the opening scene, the uh, bathhouse fight scene and the cafe fight scene, the, the two fight scenes that took place in Russia. I think one of those you might want to mention for your special uh, segment. That's right. For those of you who have been listening to our podcast, our special segment is always spot sven sven ole thorson uh who is one of schwarzenegger's longtime collaborators and has been in more schwarzenegger films than anyone except schwarzenegger (laughs) Uh, we try and pick him out in the movies he's not in all of them but he is in most of them and he's in this one and he shows up very early on uh in the spa fight scene as uh i'm not really sure who these russian gangsters were but he i think hands him a very hot rock in order to prove that he uh has worked in a steel mill (laughs) because that's something steel workers do hold hot rocks yeah (laughs) well (laughs) maybe in russia i don't know i i don't know but uh yeah anyways he 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 is there um prominently and we were glad to see him early on. Usually I, I stress out about it for the whole movie, but it was nice to see him in one of the opening few scenes. But I mean, that scene where he takes the hot rock and then, um, you know, proceeds to punch out a bunch of half-naked bodybuilders yeah. and spill out into the snow. That moment where they spilled out into the snow reminded me so much of the movie Batman Begins, where he has the fight right off the top of the movie with Ra's al Ghul in Tibet. Well, I'm glad I reminded you of that. I yeah. Batman Begins was not on my radar <laughs> while watching Red Heat. Um, but, you know, I thought that was really good. And I thought that 
Um, most of the other action, to use a word that I probably overuse on this podcast, was serviceable. But I thought that the um, the choice of using buses for the car chase at the end yeah. was pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, I thought that was great. Um, I thought that final chase between yeah, Victor and Ivan in buses was fantastic. It built to a good crescendo. We talked last time when we were talking about the movie The Predator about how the action didn't really feel like it was set pieces so much as just random moments just happening chaotically. Whereas, like, I think Walter Hill assembles, like, a really great end sequence in the third act here with this bus chase. It builds this big moment where one bus flips, one gets hit by a train, and then there's a big, you know, shootout at the end where, of course, the villain is shot, like, a billion times. (laughs) I actually have to wonder whether or not that the bus chase in this movie had any influence at all on uh, Terminator 2 or James Cameron, which... Terminator 2, Judgment Day, I mean, that, that that came out, what, two years? After, three years. Three years after this Although one. Although it would have been in production two years after. Right, and I mean, that's a movie that is really kind of revolutionized the large vehicle chase scene. Right. Uh, and I, I got to wonder if, if maybe... Uh, Maybe Jim was watching Red Heat in order to get a sense of Schwarzenegger and saw, hey, two buses, that sounds like a good idea. Well, I could do tanker trucks and RVs and everything else. Walter Hill's inspired by 1939 Greta Garbo movies. James Cameron's inspired by Red Heat. (laughs) That's right. It's six degrees of Greta Garbo. (laughs) I thought that bus chase was great, though. You know, it wasn't quite speed level, but it was fantastic. Um, I like that Walter Hill, when he shoots people gunning each other down it's like violent and ugly and it has impact like you see the blood and the squibs go off and it feels like people getting knocked down big time and that's something that's lost in a lot of the pg-13 action movies we watch nowadays where the impact is completely taken out of it but this movie when people get shot they go down hard yeah, you got the impression there was a little bit of wire work being done here. Like, yeah. once the squibs go off, there is some guy uh, just, like, hitting the metal on some uh, <laughs> some wire reel and pulling some poor stuntman back into a balsa wood table. Yeah. yeah. yeah but, I, I mean, I also like how they establish, I mean, Schwarzenegger's uh, gun that he smuggles through the uh, border through uh, diplomatic immunity, he calls it. He was the first character in an action movie to say the line diplomatic immunity because Joss Ackland would say it the next year in Lethal Weapon 2. That would be his big catchphrase. Right. Uh, I hadn't thought of that actually. Yeah. Uh, I'm making connections left, right, and center with Red Heat. (laughs) Yeah, six degrees of lethal weapon. (laughs) Um, You know, and then he gets the, uh, the 44 Magnum. Right. The Dirty Harry gun. Uh, So they established that, you know, there's a reason why these guys would be uh, blown back several feet when shot at close range with these weapons but it was one of the things i liked about this movie was it was uh kind of in your face r-rated yeah uh, the the language and the f-bombs that they were dropping were kind of warming my heart in this age where <laughs> you can kind of sneak one or two in in a comedic context and still get away with a, a pg-13 but this movie had Enough uh, high-impact, blood-and-guts violence, swearing, and TNA yeah. to deserve that uh, that Black Panther on the back. It does feel like a really hard movie. Like, a mean, hard movie. And that totally makes sense to me why I didn't like it as a kid. Because I just think it's a very acquired taste that is going to enjoy Red Heat. I can totally see why it wasn't a crossover box office hit. Yeah, you know what? It reminded me a little bit, actually, of... Uh, Dirty Harry for right that, yeah. for that reason Dirty Harry was another movie with really kind of unlikable mm-hmm. characters where the protagonist in that movie would would have been you know kind of a minor antagonist in most other movies right and and this movie has that same kind of vibe where no one's really that likable it also reminds me of Walter Hill's uh, movie that he would do about a decade later which is Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis which is kind of a Yojimbo remake, or a fistful of dollars for those of you who haven't seen Yojimbo. And uh, it's, you know, that kind of story of a gunman going to a town and then turning two rival crime gangs against each other. That movie was also, like, really mean, 
sparse in dialogue and stylish. Like, I like kind of what Walter Hill goes for. It's interesting because he's a producer on the Alien franchise, um, especially with the first two. He had a story credit as well on the second one, I believe. And so you can see that kind of sparse mood setting even in that franchise. It's a little different in terms of tone than his action movies that he's directing here. But you can definitely see how he likes these kind of sparse dialogue kind yeah, of movies. If I remember Last Man Standing, I think they took that high-impact violence up to another level. And Bruce Willis would uh, shoot people with his pistol and they would just fly across yeah. the street. Yeah, yeah. It was like the most Walter Hill movie that ever Walter Hill <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. I didn't like the movie I saw of his last, though, Bullet to the Head. With that was a St Stallone? Yeah, movie? I thought that movie was lousy. I don't know. Did you ever see it? Uh, yeah, I thought it was okay. Yeah. Mm. Not, I, not, gr not great. Not my favorite Stallone movie. No, no. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Cam, is as far as the overall aesthetic of this movie, I don't know about you, but I really found it to be uh you know we've already said mean but kind of 1980s mean right like the um the the war on drugs is very clearly in full effect here yeah uh we're uh we're looking at reaganomics at its <laughs> at its finest uh, as well as obviously you know the more obvious uh, political issues uh, sure you know this east meets west thing mm -hmm. it was certainly it was uh no balky and perfect strangers here this was um <laughs> you know i think intended to be a little bit of a uh, a politically charged and in some ways kind of a politically conservative movie right uh both a in conservative action movie <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> from the 80s <laughs> exactly both in terms of the how the characters interact but also just in terms of the overall theme where basically if you are a drug dealer you are evil yeah and you should be shot without trial or mercy not only a dealer but a user as well because schwarzenegger has the line about how you know in in the soviet union in russia they round up all the uh drug dealers and drug users and shoot them i think that was china was it china okay yeah, my, my bad in public no in less. public yeah yeah and uh, Belushi says, well, you know, the politicians wouldn't go for that here. And Schwarzenegger's like, then shoot the politicians. <laughs> it's a little dark. Yeah, it is very dark. I can never quite figure out which side of the argument the movie was taking. Or was it taking a side? Or was I don't it, think so. Or was it just there to shoot some bullets and throw some punches? No, I think Walter Hill's smarter than that. I would say he's definitely more sympathetic to the Schwarzenegger character. So I do think some of his critiques of American society, you know, that Schwarzenegger is communicating, such as, you know, the, as you said earlier, the, the porn movie on the TV in the hotel, stuff like that. Like, I think Walter Hill is definitely critiquing sort of the crassness of American culture to a certain degree through the eyes of Schwarzenegger. But I don't really know what his point is about the greater, like, criminal problems, like the war on drugs. Because in this case, it's a Russian committing these offenses in America. And so what is he saying? I mean, who knows? But obviously the Berlin Wall came down two years after this. So I, I got to wonder whether Red Heat had anything to do with that. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you think that this movie was trying to say anything, though, with its villain? Like who's this Russian that is bringing his drugs to America? You know, I don't think so, because when we do get to see Russia, I mean, we also got to see a bunch of uh, sympathetic, albeit cartoonishly serious uh, characters Yeah. Uh, when they were showing the, you know, the funeral and Schwarzenegger's partner uh, on the police force. So not everyone was evil, just the gangsters. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, it's more like the Americans often come across as just kind of feckless. <laughs> like they seem just kind of like... Oh, like it takes the order and discipline of the Russian to navigate this world and solve this problem because the Americans seem kind of disorganized, even though we see at the top of the movie Belushi and, you know, Lawrence Fishburne and another partner of theirs like busting up like a drug. But but they then case, but... they then establish later in the movie that all of those people have been released. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Due to a poorly executed warrant. I don't think this movie particularly likes the American justice system. No, and, and that's maybe a little bit what I was confused about, whether 
uh, you know, with comments like, oh, all these guys just walked free because uh, the warrant wasn't done right. Uh, right. I couldn't really tell if there is any value judgment <laughs> in those kinds of statements, whether or not uh, that was a comment on the ineptitude of the police force yeah, yeah. or uh, it was some kind of comment on how, you know, how paperwork gets in the way of true justice being done. Right. There is a very noteworthy thing that jumps out to me watching this movie now. I don't know that it would have necessarily in 1988. This is a movie about two <laughs> white police officers from different sides of the world with so much different between the two of them who bond by shooting down minorities for two hours. <laughs> More or less, there is one. Uh, There's one. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I wasn't gonna go there. But yeah, this yeah, this, this it's movie, there. It's there. This movie, yeah, does not have the most uh, charitable representational view of minorities. No, and. They aren't exactly portrayed, because there's the whole gang, the, what are they, the Clean Shaven Gang or something? The Clean Heads. Clean Head Gang. Um, like, I think they're an interesting idea, and yes, the, the ruler of them, uh, who's in the prison, is interesting, but the gang themselves are totally one-note thugs, who just kind of follow Victor around, and are easily duped by him. Yes, yes. <laughs> they don't have a lot of agency on their own. No, they don't. Um, and this is a common theme that we've come across in, in some of the movies we've reviewed on this podcast um, and gone into is, you know, minorities and women often don't have a ton of agency in 1980s, especially Schwarzenegger films. Yeah, yeah, definitely not the case for progressive values <laughs> in that era. I mean, the 80s was definitely a conservative decade in their action films, and I think you see that message very strongly here. It definitely has problematic elements. It is problematic, although as we have reviewed on previous podcasts, this is by far not the most offending of <laughs> movies that we've seen. No, no, definitely, definitely not. This one... The issues are there if you look for them, but they're not screaming in your face like some of the other movies we watched. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm sure we're going to see more of those coming up. <laughs> <laughs> so from the bathhouse steam to the train yard steam, uh, all in all, what'd you think of the movie, Cam? Let's wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, I know we've been kind of hard on this movie a lot in picking apart sort of the choose-your-own-adventure storytelling mode of this thing where it's just kind of like go to one person who will send you in a different direction to another person. I know we've kind of picked apart the crime conspiracy element of this film, but I, I will say, like, I was kind of won over by Walter Hill's direction. I like his kind of tough guy attitude that he instills in his movies. Even if the movies aren't great, they have a certain tone that I think you can at least admire knowing that he brought it to them and that it's very evident. Even a bad one like um, Another 48 Hours. You can feel it. But I think this is a, you know, this is a mid-tier case of it. And uh, it's, I think, pretty slick looking. It's uh, shot by Matthew Leonetti, who's been cinematographer on a lot of movies over the years. He did, like, Poltergeist, for example. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like, he'd done a lot of great stuff. I, he knows how to make a good-looking movie. It's scored by James Horner in a really cool, like, hard-hitting industrial score. Like, all the technical merits of this movie are there. They aren't as clunky as some of the other Schwarzenegger ones we've watched which get a little wacky right but this one just feels like even if the storytelling is a little jumbled the technical proficiency behind it is holding it together as is Schwarzenegger's charisma so for me it's mid-tier but I can enjoy it and I could see myself revisiting it in the future which is something I would not have said you know the first time I watched it when I was 12. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty fair assessment. I'm I'm on about the same page as you, uh, except for the somewhat jumbled and uh, episodic story in the movie. I I found it pretty enjoyable, and there's a lot to like in this movie, and I'm willing to forgive a lot of its deficiencies as a result. What about the old woman who walks out in the middle of the gunfight at the end? You know, I wish there was more of that in movies because it's probably actually pretty accurate how a gunfight <laughs> like that would go. <laughs> the convenient old bag lady walking between the gunfighters. But, you know, on the whole, uh, uh, I enjoyed this movie. I, I'm definitely going to revisit again in the future. Probably not the near future, but I'll, I'll pick it up again at some point. Would you say mid-tier Schwarzenegger? 
I'd, I'd probably call it mid-tier Schwarzenegger overall, and maybe on the lower tier of his uh, Golden Age stuff. Mid-tier Belushi or upper-tier Belushi? <laughs> I don't have tiers for Belushi. <laughs> it's all upper. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I think only Jim has tiers for Belushi. <laughs> my god that could not have been said better okay so tony what are we doing next time next time we're gonna claw our way out of the 80s and go into the mid 90s with 1996's eraser i'm so looking forward to this one so am i you know what it's a movie that i've seen a couple times and while it's not his most fondly remembered probably for a good reason I think it's still a movie that uh, is going to be a lot of fun to go over and review. Definitely. I am 100% down for Eraser. I think this is going to be a blast. So all you listeners out there, make sure that you go, you download it, you rent it, you stream it, do what you got to do. But before our next podcast, um, watch Eraser so you can join us as well. Awesome. And uh, you can, of course, if you want to reach us or give us any ideas, criticisms, suggestions, etc., reach us at arnigeddonpod at gmail.com or tweet us at arnigeddonpod on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in Victor Smith. And you can find me, uh, Tony G, Tony as the name, G as the letter, at arnigeddon.com. You can also go to our website, www.arnigeddon.com. Okay, and of course, leave those reviews. They help us a ton so that we can finally get that Around the World in 80 Days episode going for all of you <laughs> as a bonus thanks to everyone who sends in reviews. Yeah, 200 stars, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll be back with Eraser. Eraser.